Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 434th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Lynette Azzi-Lessing, Clinical Professor of Social Work and Chair of Specialization of Children, Youth, and Families at Boston University, who's going to talk to us about Behind from the Start, How America's War on the Poor is Harming Our Most Vulnerable Children. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital, and our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin with, welcome to the show, Lynette. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. We are excited. We call this first segment Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on what defines poverty, in the United States at least, and who might fall into this category? Okay. Um, Most Americans really don't understand uh, or may not be aware that poverty is a serious and highly prevalent problem in our country, even though we are the richest country in the world. Uh, Nearly 40 million Americans live in poverty, which is about 12 percent of the population. And in terms of what defines poverty, the government has set the the poverty line at about 17,000 well, exactly, $17,420 a year for a two-person household. So, for instance, a parent with a child. Um, It's also uh, really important to note that children, more than any other age group, are more likely to be poor in this country. There are 11 million children living in poverty in the United States, um, which is one in seven. One in seven kids live in a household um, that's poor. And the, the subset of that, the group of children that are most likely to be poor, are those under six. Okay. Um, I, just a, a comment, and you can kind of tell me if this plays into to what I, I once had uh, someone talking about poverty and, and how the government defines and so forth and so on, and, and how you get economic class designations. Um, and, and what I was amazed by was how many people live just sort of above that poverty line or live in jeopardy of that poverty line. For example, uh, this individual, and this is several years ago, but he talked about the idea of working class being um, a family unit that had, if if money were to stop, would have um, under three months of savings uh, that they could live on before they were totally destitute. And I thought of how many folks who consider themselves solidly middle class would fall into that category. Um, yeah. and, and so... Is is that an, still an accurate representation that, that, you know, in addition to this huge number of people who are technically poor, okay, by governmental regulation or standard definition, whatever, that there is, is that still a huge, is there a huge number that's sort of tottering on the edge? Yes. And that's, you know, that's a number we don't capture very well, but that's, that's a very important point. I mean, if we say, you know, $17,400 a year for a household of two is, is someone we consider uh, in poverty, that means we're not counting uh, individuals and families 
who are a few hundred dollars a year above that. Uh, and so no one's going to say eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars a year is enough for, say, a parent to 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 raise the children on. The other thing that that you're touching on that a lot of folks don't understand is that among the forty million Americans who are poor, uh, a large percentage of those folks are working. And um, it's you know we we've got a significant problem in this country with with families or individuals that are working two or more jobs and still aren't making enough money to, to raise their families above poverty. Um, and and we tend, when we think of, of people in poverty, we tend to think of people who don't work and people who rely on government benefits. But that's not entirely true. Okay, we have about two minutes left in this segment, so I'm going to ask you a really difficult question, and then <laughs> and then we can pick it back up in the second segment if we need to. So the question okay. I'm going to ask is, we have a plethora of stereotypes of people who are poor. You just mentioned one of them, the idea that uh-huh. you're out of work and, and intentionally consciously intentionally out of work um you know and sitting on a couch and sort of just uh you know living off the public dole and whatever can you kind of give us a quick laundry list of those of at least the most egregious of those stereotypes yes there and and this the stereotypes have have been in place and, and i believe you know deliberately put in place especially by politicians uh, who who really don't want to focus on this problem. And one of them is that, again, that poor poor families include adults who don't work. And, and in many, many cases, that's not true. Um, that, that somehow providing benefits to families and helping them, government helping them, uh, uh, somehow... Um, that that's too much and that's really reinforcing the desire not to work. And the research evidence shows that, that that's not true. And I also think that, that most Americans are unaware of how much the safety net has shrunk since welfare reform in the middle 90s. And most of the programs are underfunded in some states as, as little as 7 or 8% of the families with children living in poverty are actually getting any cash assistance to to help support their family and help care for their their family. Most families and most parents in poverty want to work, uh, but the problem is again, you know, childcare is hugely expensive, and many jobs don't pay enough, and it's hard to take care of, of young children in particular, and work a couple of jobs. Okay. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org.
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the second segment of our show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Lynette Azi-Lessing, Clinical Professor of Social Work and Chair of Specialization of Children, Youth, and Families at Boston University. And we're talking about, behind from the start, how America's war on the poor is harming our most vulnerable children. Our history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Terry Toppler. Rick, why don't you start us off? Well, because of your question in the first segment, I had to change what I was going to ask Lynette. So, thank God I'm flexible. (laughs) Lynette, Jay asked about the stereotypes, and and this is kind of a, I don't know, a personal tragedy in my sensitive mind. I live in a fairly less uh, economically thriving part of the urban county, and some of my friends, who uh, many of them are college graduates, and you know they're they're good Christian, Muslim, uh, Hindu people, look at poverty. Uh, people who are in poverty, which affects their children because they've sinned. Uh, uh, God is punishing them. Uh, where did that come from? Is that a a political uh, construct that? Uh, justifies politicians not doing anything to deal with this issue? Well, I I think it figures in, uh, and it goes way back in terms of history. It goes way back to Europe and, and, you know, think about England and Elizabethan poor laws, where people who were in poverty were punished and placed in workhouses and made to to work, you know, 15-hour days. Many Many of those people were children. And so you have what, what was called then the Protestant work ethic, that um, anyone who, who didn't work was somehow morally deficient and uh, morally suspect and needed to be punished. And of course, that came over with, with the founding fathers, with uh, Ben Franklin, for instance, who wrote quite a bit on on the harms and dangers of helping those who are in financial difficulty, helping those who are unable to meet their basic needs. And he really framed it as a moral issue. And I think that has that has stuck in our country where that is not the case so much in, in other countries um, that that have similar wealth to the United States. Hey, Terry. Yes. Um- I noted this year uh, for our school district that they included free uh, breakfast and lunch for all students in the district. I was very happy to hear that, especially since I used to work in an area that many thought was a upper middle class, uh, wealthier part of the town, and yet 40% of our students were on free and reduced lunch. So, yeah, appearances can be deceiving. So my question is... um, I was reading at the beginning of your book about the little boy, three-year-old boy who craved just human touch, who just wanted a hug uh, in the shelter that you visited. So I'd like to know more about what does stress and neglect of being raised in poverty harm our very young children's learning ability and emotional stability? 
That's that's a great question and and gets at something that I I think ought to matter to 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 everyone. And that is that we know that poverty is harmful to children's development. There's plenty of research to show that. More recently, we've come to see that poverty in early life is especially hazardous. And it uh, due to a, due to a number of reasons, one brain development is still occurring after babies are born, and it's most rapid in the first years of life. And so all of those neurons and brain cells and connections that that form the capacity for learning and for emotional development and social development, a lot of the, even the physical structure of that is being formed in early, early life. We also know that children's bodies and brains are at their most vulnerable and, and fragile. And so children who don't have nourishing food to eat, children who don't get enough stimulation from caregivers because perhaps it's a single mom who has to work and she can't, she can't with her low-paid job afford adequate child care, so the person watching the child is parking the little one in front of the television. All of that has an impact on children's brain development and, and especially most critically in, in early life. The other piece of this is that living in poverty, particularly deep poverty, means living in traumatic environments where there's a lot of crime in the, in the neighborhood and the family can't afford to move out. There's a lot of violence. And we know that those developing fragile brains of young children are most susceptible to the hazards of, of stress and trauma. Uh, there's a lot of talk about toxic stress, which is far beyond the everyday stress that children may encounter in trying to learn something new or have, have something negative happen in their life. But this chronic ongoing stress in the background that directly harms the physical structure of children's brains. That affects learning and all kinds of things throughout life. Lynette, so it seems to me, having heard that that litany, that it would be a uh, a critical, a priority um, in terms of of political will uh, to try to end um, cyclical or multi generational poverty. Um, I'm a child of the uh, of the '60s, and so have heard a great deal about, you know, wars on poverty and, and how, um, you know, all of these things are going to be resolved. And yet here I am as a 60-year-old, and I don't think the situation has gotten any better, and I even suspect that maybe it's gotten a little bit worse or maybe a lot worse. So so why is it that that we have failed to muster the political will to deal with this issue or where we have uh, attempted to deal with it, we've tended to to uh, do no no benefit at best and a fair bit of harm at worst. Yes, that's a that's a that's a good and, and sort of multi multi level question. Uh, what well, one of the things that that we have to be clear about is that the war on poverty under Lyndon Johnson, as opposed to the war against the poor. Uh, as I use in the title of my book, the war on poverty actually was successful, and it lifted millions of Americans out of poverty 
particularly senior citizens with Social Security and Medicare. It did less for for families with children, but it did create um, a safety net for families with children that ensured that that families wouldn't be entirely destitute if parents were unable to work uh, or families experienced some type of crisis. Fast forward to the 1990s, the middle 1990s, under President Clinton, welfare reform was enacted. And it was enacted due to deeply held myths that somehow the safety net was discouraging people from working and, and from being self-sufficient and independent, which isn't true. And research has shown that. But Welfare reform in the middle 90s essentially gutted the social safety net for families with children. It block granted what used to be a federal entitlement, that if a family had children and they reached a certain level of destitution, they could get benefits, cash benefits, and other kinds of support and help from, from the government. And, and block granted this into to states so that every state had control over that, those funds, which on the surface you would say would be a good thing because solutions could be more customized locally. But what has happened is states have had so much flexibility in spending those funds that most, mo- many, <laughs> I should say, uh, a large proportion of those funds go are spent by states for needs that have nothing to do with helping children in poverty. And in some states, as I, as I had alluded to earlier, only about 7 or 8% of the families living in poverty get any kind of cash assistance from those, those block-granted funds. Uh, so you've got, in some states, 90 92% of families living at or below the poverty line with children who are not receiving cash assistance. They may be and probably are getting food stamps and other resources, but um, the safety net is not nearly what it was back when it was created, back you know, back in the in the 60s. And so that really has has led to an increase in poverty, an increase in the number of working poor families. And it's largely based on myth that, you know, for instance, the teen birth rate has dropped by more than 61% in recent years. And there's no evidence to show that having, uh, being able to get more cash assistance increases the birth rates of poor women. And yet we have this really diminished safety net that, um, that is based on those kinds of of myths. Rick. Wow, man, that sort of shot my list of questions. <laughs> if I could say, if I could say kind, of, any, kind of my thing here, I'm if, sorry that you're following No, me. you and Terry, are you reading my, my notes here? I'm, like, I'm going to use the H word. No, I can't. Dave, Dave just looked at me. <laughs> Lynette, I, I, uh, uh, it goes back probably, oh, man, now it's probably 35 years. I started working and I was in industry and I was devoting a lot of effort to school to work transition skills and knowledge uh-huh. and what have you <clears throat> most of the people I was wor- I worked with were those borderline people 
and it was it was very difficult to to uh, what I took for granted as far as learning. You know, the uh, everything I did was applied physics, and it's uh, mathematics, whatever. To me, it's it seems pretty simple, but uh, it's like I was talking uh, a foreign language to this. What happens? To, uh, the question evolves into what happens to these children when they they get into our our educational system uh, if they have suffered traumatic stress and and uh, brain development issues what what happens in their life as they they grow up what was i looking at when i was trying to teach these uh now young adults uh, a trade yeah this this really gets at the importance of starting early and of of breaking the cycle because we we focus so much attention and, and rightly so on on trying to fix schools in low-income areas, both urban and rural areas, and really based on the belief that if we could just reform schools and address the inequities in the ed- educational opportunities once a child you know, begins kindergarten and first grade and so forth, that we could end uh, uh, the inequities in educational outcomes. But what so much recent research, particularly in neuroscience, has shown us is that we really need to start earlier. We really need to start during the pregnancies of women living in poverty to make sure that they have healthy pregnancies and deliver healthy babies. We need to work with families in in a couple of different ways, families with young children who are living in poverty. One is just to, to make sure they have enough income to to meet their family's basic needs, and so you you know that in the um, in the American Rescue Plan and in the Build Back Better Plan being proposed by the Biden administration, there's monthly tax credits that are two hundred and fifty dollars a month per child, and three hundred dollars a month per child under six. Those those cash subsidies are higher for for families with children that are young, younger than six, for this very reason, that there's so much going on with brain development in those early years, and they matter so much, that we need to make sure that families have enough food, clothing, stable housing, uh, and re- other kinds of resources to take good care of their children. We've also got to get the right kinds of services into those into those homes and help parents who were brought up and and went through that traumatic childhood themselves because most of today's poor parents were poor children. And so we want to break this cycle and make sure that today's poor children uh, don't grow up to be poor parents and keep the cycle going. And we need to do that by making sure we're providing the right services and support. Um, I say this all the time, a waiting list is not a service. And the the service array, particularly in low-income communities, has been decimated. And so it's very, very difficult often to link families with a kind of, say, substance use treatment, mental health services, parent training, job training, literacy uh, for parents uh, that they so desperately need. So we have to, we really have to have a multi 
multi-pronged approach to addressing this. Okay, Terry. Yes, Annette, I'm glad you brought up um, the call for free universal preschool and affordable childcare with our administration uh, currently. Um, And then also touched upon other policies that are needed to improve the lives of children that are born to poor parents. I was interested in that you mentioned Great Britain and how they had cut their child poverty by half over a period of 10 years uh, through a national movement to end child poverty. Can you uh, talk about that, please? Yes. Uh, Great Britain, unfortunately, they have, they have slid away from that uh, to some extent uh, in, in recent years. But Great Britain actually did cut its child poverty rate in half, and they did so by being very deliberate about it. And it was a multi-pronged approach um, in which they did more, they, they um, marshaled more resources to help families in poverty rather than our approach in the United States, which is to take things away, make life harsher for families, and hope to punish them into self-sufficiency, which, again, we've seen it doesn't work. And as, as uh, Rick mentioned, uh, things continue to be as bad as they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So what Great Britain did was they provided more resources in the way of cash assistance to, to struggling families, and they provided more intensive and longer-lasting services and did a lot of mentoring, particularly of young teen moms uh, with, with babies and young children. And they started early in life. They targeted families with young children specifically. Here, we tend to, to look for the magic bullet, to look for a short, relatively short-term, not very intensive program that has been tested with a certain group of families and deliver that to everybody, regardless of their needs. And so um, it's, it's not going to be as successful, obviously, as sort of the customized, very intentional and very intensive approach that Great Britain used in, in cutting its child poverty rate. Lynette, that sounds a great deal. We had a Finnish journalist on um, a couple of Mm -hmm. years ago who wrote a book called The Nordic Theory of Everything. And basically she was extolling the um, Finnish and really Scandinavian approach, governmental approach, um, to providing safety nets. And she talked about all of the things you just talked about, prenatal care, being free, um, hospitalization, quality child care services, quality transportation, um, access to quality education that that was built on the idea that if a school had a greater number of students in need, that school received greater services in proportion to Mm -hmm. the needs of those students. And she just went on and on and on. Um, And she argued that that was not an unrealistic approach even in a country the size of America, because Finland always gets, you know, sort of, yeah, you know, there are only a couple million of them. It's easy to do. Um, Uh So my question then is, do you see that kind of approach, whether it's what the English did for a while or whether what Scandinavian countries are doing or elsewhere, do you see that kind of approach being successful in the United States? And what kind of political will would be necessary to accomplish that? Yes. Uh, Well, I mean, one of the things that I think 
we need to make sure that everyone understands is that there isn't just a human and a moral cost, so to speak, for our high rate of child poverty. And I, I don't know if I mentioned that we have the, one of the highest rates of child poverty among similarly wealthy countries, even though we are the richest country in the world. And so there are a lot of cultural issues that get in the way here. But I think one of the things that, that tends to get pretty much everybody's attention is the fact that there are also economic costs to this. And it's estimated that our high child poverty rate costs the United States about a trillion dollars a year in lost um, economic productivity, in lost workforce quality, in special education costs, in mental health costs and um, crime and so on, and, and you could, you know, name all, all of the various factors. So there's an economic cost that I think $1 trillion is a lot of money. I, I, think, I think there ought to be uh, more attention paid to that here in terms of, of convincing people of the need to change. Uh, another key factor that I have to mention is racism and racial inequity. Children in, in poverty is a concern and a problem, but it's especially so for children of color. Black children are three times more likely to be in poverty, or I should say the poverty rate among black children is more than three times that for white children. And poverty rates among indigenous and Latinx children are also far higher than for white children. And so this has to do with historically racial inequities that, that go back to slavery and Jim Crow laws and other forms of segregation, discrimination in housing, discrimination in the workplace, our immigration policies. So there, is a, there are a lot of systemic issues that we have to tackle as well. Um, the high rates of incarceration uh, particularly among blacks and, and black men in particular. That's robbing fam families, robbing children, not only of, of one of their parents and the care and nurturance of that parent, but also of a breadwinner, uh, of deporting uh, so many parents of children, uh, depriving children who are immigrants, and many of those children are, are citizens who were born in the United States, but maybe undocumented parents, when we deport those parents in large numbers, what we're doing is depriving those families of, again, not only parents, but also the income that the parents can produce and bring into the family. So it's, it, solutions are complicated, and yet some of them are very simple. And the child tax credits is one example of a simple way to make a huge difference in the lives of, of children in poverty. And there are more and more studies that show that when you give additional cash assistance to families in poverty, they don't do what the what the myths would say that they do. The myths around poverty, uh, they they don't gamble it away, spend it on drugs or alcohol for the most part. Most of them use it to pay bills, to get cars fixed, to find decent housing, um, to to uh, get transportation so that they can get a better job and and those kinds of basic needs and they use it to feed their kids and to buy better clothes for their kids so it's a complex problem and solutions are multifaceted but there are some very simple straightforward things we could do 
if we made the decision. And I and I do think that that morality, those that judgmentalism and the myths are part of the problem that we have to tackle. All right. When we get back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 434th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords, and we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Lynette Azzi-Lessing, Clinical Professor of Social Work and Chair of Specialization of Children, Youth, and Families at Boston University, who talked to us about, behind from the start, how America's war on the poor is harming our most vulnerable children. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sreet and Terry Toppler. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish our listeners to experience the great Puzutu proverb, Otsa Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.